You're listening to sermons from Redeemer Church in Round Rock, Texas. Redeemer is a gospel-centered, missional family learning and living the way of Jesus in the suburbs of Austin. Well, thank you, Aaron. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Redeemer. Glad you guys are here this morning. Um, What a great weekend. I know it's already been mentioned, but what a great weekend that we got to have last weekend. We got to celebrate Good Friday, join together with our church plants. If you're new to Redeemer, uh, so far this year, we've sent out roughly around 80 people, and we started two new churches, Redeemer Hutto and Redeemer Georgetown this year, and we got to come back together with those folks and worship together and reflect on the cross together on Good Friday. And then Easter Sunday was just such a great morning. I mean, we put a stress test on this building in every way. Uh, if you came in late last weekend, last Sunday, we're sorry about that. Um, parking lot, this room, kids' rooms, it was, it was just a great day, though, where we reflected on all that God has done. The life of this church celebrated 10 years as a church. We baptized, were able to baptize nine people. Um, I want to say a special thanks to all of you who served last week as well, especially those who served back in the kids' area. Uh, my wife and I, we had some friends who were here for the first time, and they just kept talking about how much their kids loved Redeemer Kids. And so thank you to those of you who served last week um, in kids' ministry. All right, we're jumping back into Mark. Uh, we took a week off of Mark last week, and we're jumping back into Mark. And um, in our text today, we find Jesus appointing 12 apostles, appointing 12 apostles. Um, how many of you have ever been a part of a great team? Maybe a great team at work. You're like, that was just the dream team that I was a part of at work that one time. Now I'm not so much with the dream team. Maybe it feels a little bit more like I work with Michael Scott. But at one point, I was on a dream team, right? And maybe if you play sports, kiddos, some of you guys, maybe you're on a team, play soccer or baseball, something like that right now, and you just, you're on a great team, you love your friends, everybody plays well together. Jesus is putting together a team. He's choosing those that will join him in his kingdom work, and most importantly, those who will continue his work, his kingdom work, following Jesus' eventual death, resurrection, and ascension. And what we see today in Jesus choosing his team, what we see is that Jesus is going to really do something new. Jesus is doing something new, and we start to see that in the text, and particularly in these 12 that he chooses. And so I want to pray for us, and then we're going to kind of start working our way back through the text. I do want you to know that this scene that we're in is in a bit of a transition. This really could be two sermons, um, but I'm going to try and squeeze them into one, and I'm going to try and do it all in under 38 minutes. So let me pray and ask God to help. So let's, let's pray. Almighty God, we ask that you would prepare our hearts right now in the moment to accept your word, to hear your voice. We pray that you would silence any other voices or distractions or thoughts that are not from you so that we might hear your word, that we might receive it with a humble heart, that we might be renewed by your truth and by your grace revealed to us in your word. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Like I mentioned, we're in a transition point in the narrative. Mark tells his gospel story. Remember, we talked about this at the very beginning of the series. Mark is an ancient biography, uh, and and Mark is telling the story of Jesus' life and ministry, giving us his most essential words and actions and really putting before us the question, who is Jesus? Who do you say that Jesus is? The text really, the story really climaxes there in chapter 8 when he asks that question of Simon Peter, who do you say that I am? But that's what the Gospel of Mark is begging, that question the whole time. And he tells his story of Jesus in three parts. In our text, the first part of our text, verses 7 through 12, is really the end of part one 
of Mark's gospel, and then we transition into part two. So maybe some of you have got a, a favorite show that you'd like to watch on whatever streaming platform, and maybe you know there's multiple seasons, right? It, it's telling the same story, but in different parts. That's kind of what's happening here. You could think of verses 7 through 12 as like that final scene and the final episode of season one. Like it's been building and building and building, and then we get this awesome moment that kind of sums up the first part of the story, and it gives you a little bit of closure, but you know there's more to the story, and you sit around and you wait for season two to come out, right? Or if you're like me, we're waiting on Stranger Things. What season are we on now? Season four? Season four, yeah, we're waiting on that one to come out. Whatever it might be, you know what I'm talking about, and this is kind of what's happening here. And, and so far, what we've seen, if you're, new to, if you're new with us and you haven't been journeying with us, let me just kind of recap what we've seen in season one, part one of Mark's gospel. And it's this, that Jesus has grown quite an incredible following. He's, he's grown an incredible following. In fact, there is not a single person in the entire region of Galilee, which is where Jesus launched his ministry and did most of his ministry, there's not a single human being that has not heard about Jesus. And this is for several reasons. First, there has never been a teacher of Israel's law who is taught like Jesus. His presence, his authority, his insight. There's never been a teacher among Israel that is taught like Jesus. And so he's gotten their attention and his fame has spread. But there's more. There has never been a man with the power to do what Jesus has been doing. Jesus has been healing the sick and he has been casting out demonic spirits at every turn. There's never been anyone that has had the power to put people back together, to make people right, to heal their brokenness and their wounds like Jesus of Nazareth. There's never been a man, and he's gotten their attention. In fact, I want you just to think about this. I mean, we've been told that Jesus has healed dozens of people with a word or with a touch. I want you to think about that. That means there are dozens and dozens of people who are going around testifying to the power of Jesus to heal and change and transform, whether they were oppressed bodily by some spirit or darkness, or whether they were broken, uh, their bodies were broken with some illness or sickness. Jesus has healed them and put them back together, and they are testifying and telling the story all over the region of Galilee. Not only that, but there would have been hundreds, if not thousands, of eyewitnesses to these events who are testifying and telling the story. Jesus' fame has grown to another level. There's never been a man that has done what Jesus has done. And then finally, there has never been a person who has posed such a threat to the religious and the political leaders of Jesus' day. In fact, I want to remind you where we left off two weeks ago in chapter 3, verse 6. It tells us that the Pharisees, they went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, Jesus, on how to destroy him. I mean, Jesus' fame has grown to such a place of threat to the powerful and the proud in Jesus' day that it's like the Republicans and the Democrats get together in the Senate chamber and actually work together to get something done. I mean, that's what's happening here. The Herodians would have been like a, a, a leadership council uh, for Rome, and then the Pharisees were, the, were, were like the leaders among Israel, and uh, is, Rome is occupying Israel, and, and Israel doesn't really like that, and they don't really like Rome, but yet they come together to figure out how together they can get rid of Jesus. This has been what this first part of Mark has been building toward, and then we get this summary in verses 7 through 12. Mark ends part 1 with this summary. Let's look back at the text again, Mark 3, 7 through 12. And Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed him from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem. 
Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from, and from around Tyre and Sidon. And when the crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd. I want you to think about the intensity of the people that are coming after Jesus, lest they crush him. Verse 10, for he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and they cried out, you are the son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. I mean, what a summary of all of that we've seen so far. Jesus's fame is bursting beyond Galilee and it's spreading in all directions. Mark wants us to see that. Jerusalem and Judea, it's spreading in all directions to Idumea, which is to the south, beyond the Jordan to the east, Tyre and Sidon to the north. People are coming to him in droves. As they're coming to him, the compassion of Jesus is, uh, is on full display as he sees the crowds. They are desperate. They are pushing toward him. Maybe if we touch him, he'll heal us too. Jesus is like, get the boat ready in case they crush me. Yet at the same time, strongholds are breaking. Afflictions are healed. Unclean spirits are leaving. It is clear, Mark wants us to see, that something new is breaking into this old world of sin and death because Jesus is here. Do you see it? The kingdom of God is indeed at hand, right? That's where Mark started this section in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Jesus comes onto the scene, and what are his very first words in Mark's gospel? The kingdom of God is at hand. The time is fulfilled. Repent and believe the gospel. God's, in other words, God's rule and salvation has come to earth in Jesus. And Mark has then gone on to show us exactly that. That's his big question. Who is this Jesus? Well, he is indeed the king, the savior king. And he is breaking in the kingdom of God. God's good rule and reign is turning this world of sin and death and brokenness upside down. And I don't want you to miss how Mark ends this first section. It's interesting. He ends it by juxtaposing for us the religious leaders, the Pharisees in verse 6, who want to kill him and deny him, but yet the broken and the afflicted and even the demonic who are coming to him that identify him and say, who is this Jesus? The Son of God. That's who he is. And so that question has been Mark's question in part one. And then now as we transition into part two of Mark's gospel, that question is still the same question, but it's who is this Jesus? What is he like? What will he do now in the face of of opposition. So we've seen who he is. When he first bursts on the scene, he's amazing. He's, he, it's like God walking around, healing, putting people to, back together, knocking out Satan and evil. Who is he going to be now in the face of opposition? That's really the question. In fact, I've been having a conversation with my oldest son a lot recently about the fact that <clears throat> when things get difficult, who we really are comes out, right? Like when things get hard for you, your true colors show. We've been having this conversation my oldest son, Titus, plays baseball, and he's a really good baseball player. And for the most part in his life, the game of baseball has been easy for him. But if you know anything about sports, you know that baseball is a really hard game. It's like the hardest game to play. And the longer you play it and the older you get and the more competitively you play it, the harder and harder that the game gets. And so the game's been getting harder for him, and he's been having to kind of deal with some adversity, and it hasn't always been pretty. Um, uh, and I asked him permission to share this with you, and he said, that's okay. So go ahead, Dad. Um, but it means that, like, you know, when things get hard, like, what's coming out of you? And so we've been having this conversation, like, what's coming out of you, buddy? That, like, it, it's not your circumstances that's making this come out of you. The circumstances are revealing what's in you. And there's been a lot of selfishness in you. And that's been coming out of you when you strike out, right? Selfishness. 
not about the team. And this is true for all of us. This is true for every human being, right? Um, the uh, the two-year-old toddler in your home is not making you angry. The two-year-old toddler in your home is revealing the anger that's already in you, right? And, and, and this is the reality of every human being. In the face of challenges and hardship and struggles, what's in you comes out of you. And so this is the question about Jesus. Who is this Jesus? What, what are we going to see about him? What's going to come out of him? Who is, what's he really like? What kind of king is he? What does he do with his power and authority as the heat gets turned up on him? What starts to come out of it? And we're going to see that as we journey. So just kind of take that and put that on the bookshelf. Know that for really from chapter 3, verse 17, all the way to chapter 8, verse 27, this second part of Mark's gospel, that's the question. What comes out of Jesus in the face of hardship and opposition as the temperature gets turned up? And it all begins for us in chapters of, chapter 3, verse 13 through 19. This is like an opening scene. You can think about season two, scene one, right? You can think about that opening scene and we see that Jesus is in a new location and let's see what he does. It says, he went up to the mountain and he called to him those whom he desired and they came to him and he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. There's three things that I want to point out about this first scene in part two of Mark's gospel. And they are the place, the people, and the purpose for Jesus' apostles. The place in which he calls them, the people whom he calls, and the purpose to which he gives them. As the story transitions, so does Jesus. We see he transitions from lakeside ministry into the hill country of central Galilee. I want you to listen to what N.T. Wright says about this uh, mountain or this hill country that Jesus is in. Wright says the hills around the lake were not so much the place where people would go for, for peace and quiet like day trippers in the mountains as they were places where people went to plot revolution. And what Jesus now does is the most revolutionary gesture to this point. In other words, this place is important. Jesus is signaling something and he's making, uh, he's, there's a message that is related to the fact that Jesus now transitions up into the hill country, up into the mountains. The heat is being turned up on Jesus. Opposition is growing to him. And Jesus is not necessarily backing down, in other words. He's making a statement. He's saying, I'm a revolutionary and I've got some more work to do. In fact, in Luke chapter 6, verse 12, we're told that Jesus spent the whole night there in prayer. And so again, what kind of revolutionary is Jesus? What will he do with his power and his authority and his might and his presence and his wisdom and his insight that he's displayed? Well, he spends the whole night there in prayer. And after his time in prayer, Luke tells us that he then calls all of those who had been following him. He gathers them up. He calls them up into the hills. And from then, he chooses 12. He chooses 12 that he calls apostles. Now, I want to clarify for just a second like what this moment would have been like. You can kind of think about the crowds being gathered around, likely very sizable crowd that are being summoned to come meet Jesus in the hills. And Jesus selects 12. Now, I want to kind of help us understand what this moment was like. My family and I have been watching American Idol this season. We kind of go off and on with it, but we've been watching it this season. The kids are into it, okay? 
This is not like when America votes and cuts it down from like 24 to top 12, okay? Like in American Idol, it's not like Jesus is choosing his favorite, the most talented, the ones with the most potential, like, hey, we need a good country artist over here, and then we've got the R&B guy over here, we've got the uh, folk acoustic guy over here, we've got the Shawn Mendes wannabe over here. You know, it's not, that's not what Jesus is doing at all. In fact, with American Idol, American, it's just brutal, by the way. American Idol is just brutal because everyone that's there, like, has been affirmed. They think they're great, and they've been affirmed, like, we're so good. Like, we're we going to win this thing. They want us here. And then all of a sudden, they're just rejected, you know? Like, oh, you're not good enough. Go home. It's just brutal. This is not what's happening here. It's not like there's a bunch of wannabe apostles that are left disappointed because they didn't make the top 12. That's not what's happening here at all. In fact, what Jesus is doing when he calls and appoints 12 leaders, 12 apostles, would have been absolutely uh, unexpected. Rabbis in Jesus' day had followers, but it would have been totally unexpected and there would have been no framework or precedent for like a top 12 of my followers or leaders in my followers. In fact, what Jesus is doing is Jesus is actually sending a message. Jesus is doing something so out of the norm, so unexpected. There was no category for apostles or special disciples. This is significant. He's messaging something. What is it that he's messaging? Well, the number 12 is important. The number 12 gives us a clue into what uh, would have been messaged in the first century among Israel. Um, how many of you know how many states there are in America? How many states are there in America? 50. Yeah, we all know that, right? There's 50 states in America. Um, how many of you know how many uh, U.S. senators uh, each state has? Wow, I was impressed. I didn't think you would know that one. Good. Yeah, very good. Um, yeah, that's, that's rabbit trails there for me. I'm just Put those to the side. Don't chase them. Um, yeah, okay, good, good. I wasn't, you threw me off. I wasn't expecting that. Um, in Jesus' day, every Israelite would have known that there were 12 tribes among Israel. They would have all known that. And they would have all known that there was a particular leader who was a representative of those 12 tribes and that traces all the way back in Israel's history to one of the sons of Jacob, more or less. In fact, the pages of the Old Testament tells their story, these 12 tribes, um, all the way back to the beginning, when following the fall of man, sin enters into the world, wreck God's world, God chooses a people to whom he's going to work through because he's not only a creator God, a holy creator God, but he's a redeemer God. And so he, he selects a people, Abraham, whom he, he chooses Abraham, and from Abraham and his offspring, he's going to uh, create a nation that he'll work through to bring a blessing that will extend to the ends of the earth. He's going to redeem all creation through a representative people. And the, the pages of the Old Testament tell this story. And the Old Testament prophets spoke clearly and powerfully about a day when there would be a Messiah who would come and who would restore these 12 tribes. These 12 tribes who most of them had been um, uh, taken out by Assyria. And so they were waiting and expecting this Messiah, Savior, King to come and restore Israel's 12 tribes and to make them a great nation once again and to rule the world through them. And then here enters Jesus the Messiah. Jesus the Messiah who has been now rejected by the Pharisees. But yet Jesus the Messiah who stands at a significant place on the mountaintop and he appoints 12 new leaders. Do you see the confrontation here? Do you see the message? It's not so subtle. And there's more to it. 
The text tells us that he calls those that he desired. In other words, Jesus is doing the choosing. He is calling out and choosing, much like God has done over and over again in the Old Testament, where he sovereignly chose key leaders to work through in the world. Jesus even follows the pattern of God in the Old Testament, and he renames those he chooses, like he did with Abraham and Sarah and Jacob. Look back at the text. He appointed the 12, verse 16, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. He's choosing and he's renaming. James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother, I'm sorry, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, and he gives them the name the Sons of Thunder. What a nickname, by the way. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. The messaging is becoming clear. Jesus is utterly unlike any other human that has ever lived among Israel. Man, it sure does seem like he might be that Messiah that was promised. But he isn't doing what we thought the Messiah would do. He's not in the temple with the elites. He's not in the synagogue with the teachers of the law but he's in the hills like a revolutionary with ordinary everyday people with sinners and sufferers. Is this really God's Messiah? See, that's the question. That's the tension. And Jesus is making his point. And the point that Jesus is making in this moment is that through him, God is doing something new. Something new is coming to the world through him. That old way of relating to people through law and sacrifice and priests and temple worship. That old way was just, was just a marker. That old way was temporary. That old way is fading away. And this new thing that God is doing is breaking in, and it's beginning right here with Jesus choosing new leaders for the new people that he's creating. Leaders who would be examples to us, that it isn't through religious performance, particularly the Old Testament system. It isn't through that that we have fellowship with God, but it's by his grace and through faith in Jesus, the Messiah. That's the new thing that God is doing in Jesus. He's offering to each one of us what it is that we don't deserve, transforming grace. That's what he's doing. And these 12 get to be the first examples of what God has offered to each one of us. You might be thinking, all right, like, where do you actually see that in the text? Just kind of feels like there's some names here. Uh, yeah, Jesus in the mountains. But where do you actually see this idea that God is beginning something new that he's doing, which is a way of transforming grace that he's going to then offer to all people? Where do you see that? Well, Mark actually alludes to it. He alludes to the sacrificial death and the victorious resurrection of Jesus when he mentions Judas in the text. Notice he kind of gives away a little bit of the end of the story, doesn't he? What does he say? Judas Iscariot betrays Jesus. By the way, did you know that Iscariot is not actually uh, Judas' last name? Did you know that? Did you know that Iscariot actually means dagger? Like, he calls him Judas the dagger. Mark goes on to say who would betray him. It's interesting, isn't it? He's alluding, even at the beginning, to what it is that God was going to do through Jesus. He's going to take 
a bunch of people and he's going to offer them transforming grace. And it's important that we realize that. It is not at all like Jesus is, you know, the GM of a sports team and he's putting together, um, you know, kind of the best of the best. Uh, These are the people that will take my message forward. These are the people who will establish the church. These are the people who will take the good news of the gospel to the ends of the earth. In fact, it's less like he's putting together a, a team as a GM with the best of the best. And it's more like the little giants. You guys remember that movie? You guys remember, like, they form a football team, this kid's football team, and it's like the kid who's blowing snot bubbles, and then there's, like, the other kid who can't catch anything, and uh, then there's Icebox, uh, wasn't that that her name? Icebox, yeah, the girl that couldn't play on any of the boys' teams, and he's like this ragtag bunch of people that should never be on the team. This is what Jesus is doing. He chooses Simon, whom he renames Peter the Rock, but yet Simon is a man of hollow zeal who eventually would be a denier of Jesus. He chooses... James and John, and he calls them the, the sons of thunder, which I think they probably thought that was a really cool nickname. But I think, in fact, later on in the, in the scriptures, we find out that they both are kind of egotistic and hot-tempered. And so, like, guys with egos probably would think that that name was a really cool name. He chooses kind of these egotistic guys, guys with uh, Peter with hollow zeal and a denier. He chooses Thomas a doubter, Judas, a betrayer. He calls Matthew a tax collector, along with Simon, Simon the Zealot, who would have hated Matthew. This would have been a team full of conflict and hatred. This is who he knowingly calls to be examples and leaders of this new work and that he's doing. Why would he do this? Well, because he's messaging. He's messaging that these 12 would be examples of his transforming power and his transforming grace that these 12 leaders would be the first and would be examples of the kind of people that God loves to seek out and save and use for his glory. There's some of you who are here this morning that probably don't feel very useful to God. You probably don't feel very adequate to God. You think you maybe don't have a lot of gifts or that your past is uh, too, um, too broken for God to truly do anything with you today other than allow you to participate in his church. And I want you to know that that's an absolute lie from the enemy. It's very clear God chooses leaders who would be an example to us of the exact kind of people that God loves to not only save and change, but to use in profound ways for his glory. And finally, he chooses these 12 to be an example to us of the kind of relationship that God now invites each one of us into by the power of his spirit. Look back at verse 14. What kind of relationship does God now invite each of us into by the power of his spirit? Verse 14, he appointed the 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. This new thing that Jesus is doing in the world, this new people that he's forming, he has a twofold purpose for anybody who would come into discipleship. And it's first that we would be with him and that we would become like him, that we would do what he does. Jesus' first priority for you, if you are his disciple, is that you would be with him. I wonder how many of you have never noticed this in the text before. Like you just read kind of past the fact that God actually first and foremost desires to be with you. And maybe you wake up in the morning and you're more motivated by all the things that you need to do for God rather than this reminder here in the text that God actually wants you to be with him. Perhaps you even are passionate about doing all the things that you have to do each day for his glory. And you find honor 
and privilege in it. But you often perhaps find yourself without much depth, without much delight, without much intimacy in your relationship with God. Like you could, you know, you could maybe get to the end and you could stand before Jesus and you could be really confident and look at all of the things that I've done for you, Jesus, how I've lived my life, how I've stewarded my resources, how I've loved my kids, how I've served the church. And Jesus would say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. But I wonder how much Jesus might feel, might feel a little bit distant. Like, ah, I don't know that I really knew him that well. How intimate, how familiar will he feel to you? Jesus reminds us that his first priority for us as his disciples is to be with him. See, the 12 are examples to us of what Jesus desires from every person that he calls. He desires to know you. He wants you to enjoy fellowship with him. He calls you into a relationship where with these 12, we see that he loves to eat a slow meal with them, to cultivate friendship, to delight in them. See, this is at the core of who God is. He's a relational God, and he is a lover, and he is delighted to be with you. Jesus desires to be with you. In fact, on this side of the cross and the resurrection, we see it so clearly that Jesus so desires to be with each one of us, that he's given his spirit, that he's put his spirit within us so that he could personally dwell with each one of us. He's given us his spirit as a source of his presence to walk with you, to talk with you. You know, Paul says in, in, uh, in Galatians that we are to keep in step with the Spirit. The Spirit was given as a gift so that God's very presence could lead you and guide you. And I wonder for some of us how many of us just get out of step with the Spirit, that we just kind of go on about our day and we forget that the very presence of God is right there. And that God longs to be with you, for your ear to be tuned to his voice. Paul tells us that we are to pray without ceasing. I want you to think about that. The prayers of God's people are not overwhelming to him, but instead he delights in it. Jesus sits enthroned, advocating for each of his children. Jesus has come and be with me. The invitation of these 12, it reminds us of the life with God through Jesus that is not about religious activity or performance. In fact, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I want to ask you just to please hear me. That, that Jesus' invitation is not about religiosity. It's about a relationship. God wants with each one of us the very thing that your soul actually hungers for, real connection, real love, and it can only be found through Jesus in God. Jesus says, come, be with me. What an invitation. And the second part of the call is to become like him. Come and be with him, and then to come and become like him. Come and do what it is that Jesus does. In other words, out of the overflow of our being with Jesus, they are to do what Jesus does. Now, I know that some of you have been waiting for me to get to this point in the text, because you're going to say, what's he going to say about casting out demons? Here it comes. What has Jesus been doing in Mark's gospel? What is it that Jesus has been doing? The invitation is, come and be with me, Come and be like me. Come and do what I do. What has Jesus been doing in Mark's gospel? Well, he's very clearly been preaching the good news that God's Messiah, his Savior King, has come, and he has been demonstrating that good news through miracles, particularly healing the sick and casting out demons. And Jesus now tells them that they are enlisted in this same work. In other words, disciples of Jesus are not spectators in the mission of God but they are in the game. Jesus puts his people 
in the game. And this is emphasized by giving them the name apostles, which literally means sent ones or commissioned ones. Jesus sends them. It alludes to what it is that they will do following his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. Now, in a few chapters in Mark's gospel, we'll see that Jesus actually sends the disciples out, but it's kind of like they go out to do ministry and try and do what Jesus does, but he's still supervising it. Like Jesus is there. They come back and report to him. It's like they have training wheels on. It's like maybe, you know, if you think about the first job you ever had and you got supervised for me, it was like, okay, this is how you check groceries. Boop, boop. Okay, your turn. You do it. Boop, boop. Oh no, red onions. What's the code? I don't know. You know, like that was the, that was kind of the way that I was trained. He was right there to help in case I didn't know what to do. Jesus sends them out in this way, but he's there to supervise. But later following his death and his resurrection, his ascension, he's going to give them the Holy Spirit and he's going to send them out as the primary means by which the good news of Jesus would go forth in the world. That these 12 would become the foundation of a new spiritual house that God would build in the world. They would become the hands and feet, literally, the hands and feet of the resurrected Jesus who would continue his work in the world now through his body, his church. They would establish Jesus' as church, the family of God, where in every place a community of light would exist to push back the darkness and declare and display and demonstrate the good news of Jesus. Now, what about casting out demons? I want you to know that this call that Jesus gives them is not at all exclusively about becoming exorcists. In fact, all we have to do is just read the next few pages of the Bible and read into the book of Acts. Do they do some casting out of demons? Sure, they do that. But they do so many other things. In many ways, what this is, is this is almost like a bookmarker of Jesus saying that your job is to proclaim the gospel and push back darkness. Proclaim the good news that Jesus has been victorious over sin, death, and evil, that Satan has had his day. In fact, Satan will very literally be cast out upon the return of the resurrected King Jesus. This is your job. Proclaim the good news. Push back the darkness. Establish the church in every place and every time that will be a lighthouse, a community of light, proclaiming the good news and, casting, and pushing back darkness. And I want you to know that this is what we've been enlisted in. This is what these 12 apostles pass on to the church in all times and all generations. In fact, there is no greater purpose that we have to live for. In fact, there are so many people who are trying to find something real, something significant, something meaningful, something that matters to give their life to. There are so many people and they, are, they end up kind of setting their life on, on a counterfeit cause or a counterfeit quest. Maybe it's success, maybe it's career, maybe it's family, this kind of ideal family, maybe it's money, uh, maybe it's experiences and pleasure. Like that's kind of the quest. That's what I'm going to live for. But it's in every human soul a desire to live for some measure of purpose, to have some measure of existence. And I want you to see that in this text, Jesus promises that in him and only him, those desires can be met. First of all, he says, come and be with me. That desire for connection and love and, and, um, and, and to be known, come find it in me. That desire for purpose, for existence, for something significant to live for, he says, come and do what I do. Come and be like me. Come and live for my kingdom and for my glory. Come and find it in me. It starts with the 12. And so what does Mark want us to see? 
He wants us to see that something new is indeed breaking into the world in Jesus. Right? I mean, Jesus is either a Looney Tune, radical, in the hills, rallying the little giants for his cause, or he is the Christ, or he is God. That's what Mark wants us to see. Who is he? He's either the one who offers transforming grace and, tr- and changes people and repurposes their life and meets their every need in his person and, and commissions them to give their life to something that matters, something that's an eternal. Who is he? See, a Looney Tune radical, is he the Christ? If you're here this morning and you're a disciple of Jesus, will you believe again afresh and new who it is that Jesus is and what he's called you into? What he invites you into? Come and be with me. Come and be like me. And if you're here this morning and you have not entered into discipleship with Jesus, will you consider what he offers, the transforming grace? He forgives and he can redeem your life. The purpose that he gives, he can repurpose your life for his glory, for something that matters. If that's you, would you repent this morning and would you believe upon Jesus and let it all begin for you? Let's pray. Lord, we sit before the text this morning and we consider the claim of who you are and what you've done in this world. And Jesus, it's very real and it's very accessible to us today. You have done something new. You've broken into this old world of sin and death and evil and you have been victorious through the person and work of Jesus, through his life, through his death, through his resurrection. And that you've called us. You said, come and be with me. We can have access to you, God. We can have connection that's real and that's significant, that the, the hunger in our soul to belong and to be known can be met by you, the God of the universe. What grace. That you can give us purpose and significance that the everyday stuff of our life can all be leveraged for your kingdom and for your namesake, that through the way we love neighbor, through the way that we love others, through the way that we live our lives and what we do with our resources, that we can push back darkness in this world until the day that you come again. Lord, I simply ask and simply pray that you would help us to be a church by your grace and for your glory that knows what it means to be with you. Renew us, God. Draw us deeper and deeper into your affectionate love. And help us to be a church that knows what it means to do what you did, to proclaim the good news. Lord, we are asking that this would be a year of evangelism in our church. Help us to speak the good news, to do what you did, to become like you through the power of your spirit put in us, to push back darkness around us, to believe in your name that powerful things can be done. Help us to be a church that cares for the broken in our city, that it steps into dark places like you did, that befriends sinners, that cares for the sick and the marginalized. I pray for the person that's here this morning. If they don't know you, I ask, Father, that they would open pages of this holy book that we have and that they would continue to see who it is that you are, that you would reveal yourself to them and that they would find their life hidden in Christ, transformed by grace, repurposed for your glory. As we respond to you now in these moments, Holy Spirit, we invite you to come and minister to our souls in Jesus' name. 
Thanks for listening. If you are looking for info, find our website at RedeemerRR.org or download the Redeemer Round Rock app from the Android or iOS app store.